the water's fine, homie. Jump into the deep end. So it you will reap it. We're talking how to start it, how to grow it, how to keep it. Take a deep breath. You are now rocking with Founder Secrets. Yossi, welcome to Founder Secrets. Ooh, I'm excited. Good to Yossi see you guys. Yossi is uh, living the American dream from rags to riches. Came from uh, South <laughs> Africa. Uh, he started a business, sold this, sold, started another business. He, he started a not-for-profit school to help kids in South Africa um, learn the programming chops to get him a great high-paying job. It's just a real inspiration, man, to, to hear about the journey today. I'd kick it off at how is entrepreneurship different? You're in New York now. How is it entrepreneurship different in the U.S. than in South Africa, you think? Yeah, it's a good question, and it's great to be on the show. Uh, good to see you guys. How is it different in here to South Africa? Well, the first thing is in South Africa, it is impossible, almost impossible, to raise the kind of money that you can raise in the U.S. on just mm -hmm. an idea. Uh, there is a culture here to back incredible ideas before you've potentially built anything because that's, how, that's where unicorns are born uh, and there's capital that chases those types of dreams. So really the American dream of you can come here with an idea and a possibility uh, is true. Uh, we started a company, Metaversal, raised $50 million in our Series A when we were a small team of people and really an idea of what we can do and not much to show for it uh, at that point in time. but found a wide audience of backers who would be willing to do that. So I'd say that's kind of number one. And then number two, the scale of the market here is at a different level of thinking. South Africa is a country of 45 million people, but has a kind of middle-class market of maybe six or 7 million people. And here mm. you've got to be thinking at a scale that's completely different. And that changes the way you think about building a startup here. We can go into some details of that, but it's a completely different mindset of how to build. How do you think of kind of straddling the line between America, you know, your new home, let's say, and where you're from? I mean, it seems like you give a lot back to South Africa, you know, with the nonprofits and, and wanting to create opportunities there. How do you kind of mentally think of it in terms of, you know, what do you get back to America or the place that you are now? Like, how, how, how do you kind of walk that line or think through that? Yeah, you know, for me, it really is kind of in life. And I had a coach who I worked with for some for quite some time, and she helped me see that most things in life are ands and not ors. And how do you make living in the U.S., having access to South Africa, and in building your business here, and what can you do for that? So, is there talent in South Africa that? having this opportunity to have access to the US would want to work for a smaller company that we could acquire at a cost that would be impossible for us to get someone with that same level of capability and skill in the US, as an example, as a startup. Are there untapped markets or the untapped opportunity that we could explore and uh, kind of be the bridge between these two markets? Uh, and then on the other side is, in the US should we be bringing into the, that I can learn from as an entrepreneur who hasn't built in this market, who hasn't done things here that can accelerate my learning. And you really have some real veterans and some seasoned entrepreneurs who have built huge organizations. So how can I level up my learning and my skill and rapidly accelerate that by tapping into the talent pool that is here as well? And the combination of those two things, I think, is what makes me as a founder unique. 
that then also enables us to do some unique things within our companies, as opposed to trying to kind of think of one or the other and kind of separating them out. Do I, did I understand right that you ran an email service provider for what, 11 years and then looks like sold it and became more of an investor and kind of a mentor. And now you started the new business. Yeah. What was that journey like? I mean, did you sell the business? Like what was that journey like doing one thing for really quite a long time to now it seems like you have your hand in all kinds of different pies. Yeah. So one thing for, for 11 years was right. I was 21 at the time. I started the business with a high school friend who was a homegrown hacker. Uh, at the time, we had no idea what we were doing. If we're honest, we were like, let's start this company. We went to investors. They asked us, how much money do we need? We, at that time, thought a million rand. The currency in South Africa is rand. is equivalent to about $60,000. Sounded like more money than we could ever spend. So we asked for a million rand. We sold 50% of the company at that for that million rand. And we did all the kind of mistakes that any first time founder should do. Took too little money, sold too much equity and started a company, but ultimately managed to build a successful business. It's still today. It's still a, a going company today. I sold pretty living years into a large multinational called uh, Dimension Data. My business partner, who was the CTO, continued to run the company. And he actually, three months ago, bought the business back. Uh, it's oh. about 45 people. It's got a couple of million people on the platform. So it's still, you know, growing and, and going. But that entire journey taught me everything I know about entrepreneurship, how to hire, how to fire, the mistakes to make, how to manage your cash flow, how to hustle, how to sell, how to sell both a product, how to actually sell a business, all of those lessons learned during that time. And it was both you know, some of the highest highs and lowest lows I've had in the business. And then transitioning in that into the investor seat took some time to actually understand that I'm no longer an operator, I'm a investor. And my job is to actually help find great portfolio companies to invest in and help them solve their problems, not be the person who solves the problem. And that took some time to get out of the doing and more into the coaching, mentoring and helping kind of unblock and being able to make that transition. How old were you when you first started your business, Taylor? 19. I guess Similar. I gotta say, I'm like a little jealous of you guys for starting. So I wish I had started early. I guess my advice for people <laughs> would be like to I'll, start six. And, and honestly, I was thinking, that's like half a decade that they, they could have been building a company. <laughs> and, and I was one of the youngest, to your point, right? So we in Charlotte applied to this accelerator. Uh, called Blueprint Health, which is affiliated with the Techstars in New York. Mm. And um, that's how I ended up in New York. And I was like one of the youngest, I think I was the youngest in that accelerator, but definitely wish I started earlier. But back to Techstars and that piece, you came to New York to work at Techstars. I'm wondering, uh, what did you learn from being involved? Because I got to tell you, that was an inspiration, seeing Brad Feld and Y Combinator and like one of the coolest things I saw Bloomberg did a little, little highlight of some tech stars companies in New York while I was in Charlotte and I was like, wow, I got to be there. And, mm. and then I ended up being there. I was literally on the same Starbucks and coffee shops that those people were. And for me, that <laughs> was such a huge inspiration. I'm wondering what was your experience with tech stars and what you took away from being yeah. part of it. So you got to remember for like a kid growing up in Johannesburg, South Africa, who's into tech, uh, reading about Bill Gates and Michael Dell and these startups and then seeing people like David Cohen 
uh, and tech stars and this kind of American journey of entrepreneurship, it didn't exist in South Africa. Coming here to New York and then being in that ecosystem, it was like a, a dream come true. Like, you go from here to there and be able to be in the space of entrepreneurship. You know, Textiles is an organization investing 500 startups uh, a year. It's a huge ecosystem accelerant uh, through its accelerator programs and has access to some of the best mentors in the world. So just being able to tap into that and learn from that and also see at scale what does it take to invest in companies early. It was almost like I went through my own investment accelerator because you get to see so many more companies. You get to pattern match so much more quickly. You get to work with MDs from across the country that are running their own accelerator programs with tech stars in different cities and learn from that experience. I was there for four years. And in that time, it really feels like I got the experience of what a VC would normally accumulate in 10 to 12 years of being a VC. Uh, and that was what uh, I learned out of that experience. Uh, and another thing that I got out of the, the textiles experience, you know, one of the values that they have, which they live very strongly is this kind of principle called give first, uh, and really did culminate through the entire organization. It was the way that it interacted with its founders, with its people, you know, not these kind of onerous terms and deal sheets that you can potentially come up that's trying to like trip up founders and take too much equity. It was very much a, that if we build almost like with good karma, good things will come back for you. And those two kind of principles, good people around you, kind of good karma, good things, was the kind of basis of how Techstars operated and I learned a fortune from uh, the founders and the MDs that I got to work with. How did that process kind of work? Did you know, you, it looks like you were involved in Techstars in South Africa and then did you kind of raise your hand? And I think you started the blockchain kind of program here in New York. So did you raise yeah. your hand? You say, hey, I want to go to New York or how did that work? Yeah. You know, originally when Techstars uh, came onto the scene, I just sold, I was just in the process of selling my business and I wasn't looking for any, any role and actually turned down the job when I got introduced to it. And they managed to convince me just to take it for one year and try it. And one year became almost five. But two years into that journey, I had, I'd always wanted to move to America. That was kind of a, an earlier childhood dream. And textiles was a, a, a pathway to coming to the US. It was the reason, actual reason that I took the job was like, okay, well, maybe there's a way to get a visa to the US if I come with this company. Stayed that to, to uh, David Brown at the time, was the CEO of the company. And he was like, that's a great reason to join. Like we want people to come from uh, around the world. So that was part of it. And then about two years into it, I put my hand up and I said to them, you guys are missing a big trick here with the blockchain and with crypto and everything that is happening here. I've been in the space. I'd bought Bitcoin in 2013. I'd invested in a couple of blockchain companies. And there was a moment in time where there wasn't a premier grade uh, accelerator program, a tier one accelerator program for blockchain specific companies uh, and for crypto. And I thought there was a huge opportunity to be able to build a multi-city program across the globe and textiles could command a space in that in that space and put up my hand and said, I will you know, move over to the US and run that and do that. And that was the plan. And then you know, sometimes you make plans and then you get hit in the face. COVID came, accelerators, in-person accelerators were not the thing that people wanted to do. And there were some uh, big regulatory uh, tailwinds, sorry, headwinds, on the crypto side and you know 
that kind of moving to the US in 2019 in crypto was probably the worst time to move to the US and try and build a crypto accelerator. But that's what happened. What got you excited? You know, I feel like technology people fall into kind of two or three camps around crypto or, or blockchain, let's say, right? You know, sure. one is fanatics, two is diehard, think it's a scam. And then three is just kind of looking in from the outside. Like, you know, it seems like you're a fanatic. And I wonder, <laughs> I mean that lovingly, but I, I wonder, sure. like when you look at somebody who's a smart technical person and they don't see, you know, what the value is around NFTs or crypto, or they see them as scams, or they see them as, you know, a lot of hoopla, but not a lot of value. Like what, what, what do you think? Or what, what would you say to someone like that? Yeah, I think I'll bring it down to kind of first principles. When technology came onto the scene and the internet came onto the scene, they were the kind of uh, huge believers on how this was going to change the world. And I don't even think they understood fully how much uh, this technology was going to change our lives. And in that process, uh, the internet from its foundation was built in an open way. Protocols were open. Anyone could build on top of these uh, core fundament fundamental technologies to be able to allow us to connect in new ways online. And through that process, we've had companies who've kind of hijacked that. They have built on top of these protocols and created the experiences that we use, but ultimately own either the data, the access, or both in that process. And now these are not no longer just fringe little companies that are driving a new paradigm in technology. This is our day-to-day -day life and existence. If you get shut off Twitter, as an example, that has a real both social and political impact on what you can and can't do in this world. The same with Facebook, the same with using access to Google. Let's use Uber as an example. You know, there was a point in time when I came to New York City, the only way you could take a cab was by putting up your hand and calling down a yellow taxi and you would get into that cab. There was no way that anyone could decide whether I was getting into that cab or not getting into that cab. There is a foreseeable future where if you have an app like Uber, someone at Uber could decide whether you have access to this network of uh, cars today or tomorrow. And it could be for good reason or it could be for bad reason. And the whole of the internet is becoming centralized into a few companies that ultimately have control over our digital lives. They weren't voted in. There's no democracy for them. There's no kind of, you sign their terms and conditions. And I don't think that's a world that I want to, that's a future that I want to create. These should be open utilities that people who have access to them, it's open. And the people who are on them are either rewarded for being on them uh, have control over their own information and their data and have a vote and a say in how these networks build out, just like a country does with a democracy. Uh, and these networks are as big as countries and as powerful as countries and need to have that type of governance. So Bitcoin, crypto, decentralization, that type of movement represents a technology that didn't exist in the past that now enables that to be the status quo. And obviously, the people who have the power do not want that to happen because they're letting go of a lot of control. But that's why you have fanatics and that's why you have evangelists and that's why you have people like me and others who think this is the way the Internet should be built and the way that we should be thinking about this technology moving forward. So you're a tech star seeing 500 companies a year and 
sometimes, by the way, when I see a lot of companies, it almost is demotivating to start one because you're seeing these kids go so fast on so many ideas. A lot of them fail. You kind of see the real percentages play out. And you're like, gosh, this is <laughs> really risky. As opposed to when you just have one idea and you pursue it and you think it's like, well, it's one, it's 100%. This is me. I'm doing it. Right. And so I'm wondering, like, how did you end up taking that plunge on one idea, which ended up being metaversal? And also, how did you work at the visa? Doesn't the visa like attach to a company you work for? So wouldn't it be attached to Techstars? How would you start your own company and still stay in the country? It's a good question. Well, let, let's start with the visa. The visa I got a, for anyone who's trying to get into the US, there's a process called a EB1. It's a extraordinary person's visa. You can apply for it and it goes through a kind of a, a lawyer will build a case for you. You apply it, you get accepted. It's an automatic green card. So I went through that process and you're able wow. to get a green card through that. So Techstars didn't sponsor you. It was through EB1. Techstars sponsored me to work for Techstars. And in that process, I also did the EB1 in, in, pro, in parallel. Um, so you don't have to have a sponsor, but there are many other ways that you can uh, get into the US. And Flavio, you've got your own stories on, uh, on how to do that. But then on the other side, on kind of choosing one thing, I think it's really a personal question. Like I enjoyed being an investor and looking at companies and working and mentoring and investing, but I've always felt like I have another business in me and want to be a builder. And there are people who get excited in the building and there are people who get excited in the kind of supporting, deploying, investing and finding uh, new opportunities and can do that on a kind of mathematical statistical equation point of view. It's probably the stupid decision because you're betting one thing and the probability of success is much lower where you can hedge and deploy capital across multiple and you'll have a higher likelihood of success, but life is short and this is my calling and this is what I want to do. And it's why I came to the U S was to build something in the U S so for my sins, that's what I'm doing. I love it. Can, so can you explain to the audience, like, what is metaversal? Like, and what, in kind of simple terms, like, what is it? Yeah, metaversal in simple terms is a company that builds entertainment IP using NFTs. So we think NFTs is a new way for consumers to consume entertainment, just like when we went from radio to film. It was a big paradigm shift in how people could tell stories and be entertained and consume media. We think that this is that next shift going from film to NFT or social to NFT is a whole new paradigm in how people will consume, interact with, own IP. And we are a company that is building both the technology and the IP to bring that to market. So is, you know, there's, there, there's some big writers and uh, there are a lot of strikes going on right now in Hollywood. Yeah. It seems like all of Hollywood is shut down. I'm curious, like, did, you know, when you think of IP, when you think of entertainment, does that impact you? You know, if they go on strike for the next six months or 12 months, does that impact you or the industry in a way? Well, we think of it as a tremendous opportunity for us to really educate and bring in writers into this type of ecosystem where there is co-ownership, where you as a creator can set the rules for how that intellectual property that you're creating gets shared, gets owned, and how people can consume it from the beginning, but also become co-owners in that, in that creation. So we've invested in some technology that enables that in, in much easier ways. And we're actually working with some writers today to see, can we bring that to life? 
We are, I, I can't reveal it on the show here, but we're looking at you know, launching a fund that will help new emerging writers to leverage this technology and become bigger owners of the IP that they create because creators have been disenfranchised from this uh, from most of the upside in the work that they create. Uh, and we think this represents an entirely new way for people to create and own both the um, IP that they create, more of that, and for the people that support them early to be participants in them. That's what makes this technology so uh, profound. It's not about you know pictures of apes on the internet, it's about completely new ways to be able uh, to co-own the stories that we create. So I guess explain a little more. So in the way video killed the radio star, you think NFTs <laughs> killed the video star. It's a big statement. And I'm wondering, what would you say are those key differentiators? Because from radio to TV, it seems pretty easy to me that like instead of hearing something, now I can see it. Um, of course, everything looks obvious in, in hindsight. So I'm, I'm, I'm trying to figure out what are those like key things you think are huge differentiators for this new medium that we don't have today? Sure. Well, let's take it like I'm a Star Wars fan. Uh, I enjoy the Star Wars franchise. I love everything about it and all the different characters. But if you want to go out and build a Star Wars type of franchise today, you have to get a major studio to back you. You need to have you know tens to hundreds of millions of dollars. And ultimately, you as the creator are going to own a small fraction of that success, if anything, because the economics are set up in the way that they are. Now, what if in the beginning, I could create these characters, I could get a community of people behind supporting them and buying those characters digitally, and I could own some of the upside of Luke Skywalker. And by holding that, I can get access to a world of immersive experiences that gives me the ability to be part of. I can maybe create some of my own stories. I can go and commercialize it myself. I can be part of the main production. I can be taking these characters into games and to different platforms. All of these options around what I can do with this set that's been created. Me as the creator from the beginning has a new way to build a community around the IP and story that I want to bring to life that doesn't cost hundreds of million dollars to start. Now move forward in that. I've been successful somewhat in producing this IP and this story. Maybe I've got 50,000 uh, followers on my uh, Twitter account. I've got 10,000 holders of these characters. Uh, I've generated a couple of million dollars in sales on these different pieces of IP. If I then take that to a studio to go and produce it into something today, I have one completely different negotiating power in what I can get in producing it into a film, but I've already immersed a fan base into the story. My first opportunity isn't in bringing it to the screen, which costs you know hundreds of millions of dollars. I've brought people along from the beginning of that journey. And what would that look like if I owned you know Luke Skywalker number one before it even hit the big screen? And that's what I mean by it's completely going to just disrupt the entertainment industry. It completely changes the way that we bring stories to life and we bring people into that at a much, much sooner, much earlier basis than what we traditionally used to. So, so okay, so you create, say, 100 characters. What's the incentive for a person to buy into Luke Skywalker number two here? Is it, is there value they get 
in the beginning or is it more a bet that you will eventually sell it to a studio and create something bigger where my value in that Luke Skywalker number two will appreciate. And sure, I'll get some things along the way, but the real value is in that long game of this becoming the next Star Wars. It's almost like an investment in a startup. And, and hey, like a bunch of Luke Skywalkers are not going to make it, but if I buy enough of them, maybe one of them will be that next Star Wars. Is that the mentality of a customer of, of these characters in the NFTs? It's, it's, it depends who you ask and who the customer is, because there's probably like three different types of customers in the NFT market today, and it's emerging. It's all new. There is the short-term trader who is coming into this, and they don't care about the story. They don't care about whether this is going to be the next Star Wars franchise. They just care about, does it have momentum? And can this be something that I flip for a couple of ETH? Can I buy it today and sell it in three weeks or three days or in three minutes for more money than I bought it? And it's a lottery ticket that I'm buying into. And there are people that do that day in and day out and they use data and they start figuring out, are these the projects I'm going to buy into and flip? The short-term flippers uh, is one part of the market. And unfortunately, in the kind of bear market, there's just the short-term flippers that kind of get left in the market. Then you have the long-term believers who are buying it because they think this could be the next Star Wars project uh, and are holding it on for the long-term. And then you have the people who truly love the IP, who love the story and are doing it because that resonates with them. And they don't really care about any financial game. If that comes, that's cool. There's maybe some upside that they get in the story creation, but they're really doing this because they are excited about what is being created. And ultimately, as a project creator, you want the last two. You want to get majority of these long-term holders and people who are passionate about the project uh, and what you're building, and you want to build a community from there. I'm curious, so, you know, Ben Thompson, who's kind of a writer in the tech space, he wrote this week about, about the Hollywood strikes. And I thought it was a very interesting take. And one of the biggest takes was that none of the streaming companies are making money. That basically no one, you know, Disney Plus isn't making money. Netflix isn't really making money yet. You know, Apple isn't making money. Like none of these companies in the streaming space are making money. And the whole pitch that they made to investors is that we're going to verticalize the market. You know, we're going to take out all the middlemen and we're going to make all the money. And what has actually happened so far is that they've taken out all the middlemen, taken on all the risk and lost all the money. And I just think that that's very interesting when, you know, I hear conversations like this that are so focused on creatives or so focused on kind of the creative aspects of some of these things. And it feels like maybe where all the money actually gets lost and maybe gained is in either the distribution or how do you get access to the customers or, or how to actually make it work to the customer itself, right? So, so not the investment part of this, but how does someone, how does a consumer actually consume that new Luke Skywalker? Like, how do you see kind of that? Well, well, what streaming has shown us is that the money's not in distribution because they have the distribution. So they have the distribution that everyone would dream of. Any founder would be like, wow, if I could get that kind of distribution, think of the money I could make. And that was the pitch that we, if we own the distribution and we produce, we can have that vertical integration to make the money. But what you're finding is that it costs so much to make these bets and that you're in the hits business that you, you make money or lose money based on your biggest hit. And it's very expensive to try and be in that game. And what I'm saying is that we can turn that on its head and you can take much, much smaller bets with, a, with some IP that you're producing 
that you have a fan base that you can build on much earlier that become part of that community and build it out that you de-risk the project along the way. So eventually it might become an animated series or a feature film or anything along those lines. And you can commercialize that success much later on, but you're not having to take a hundred to $300 million bet to make, to see whether that has any kind of legs. And you as the creator don't have to give up all of the ownership in that process to take that bet because you want to see this thing come to life and right now you only have really one path i can go send it to a studio and they're going to pay me you know a hundred thousand dollars for my script and that's my contribution as a writer and i have to move on to the next script that i do or i can take that and i've got this new way of bringing it to life and own far more of the upside and i think if those incentives are better aligned there is a new model that can be created that everyone wins in that loop. And that's what ultimately this technology is trying to do, is to align incentives through this type of tokenization. I have to ask, isn't AI gonna create all these videos and animated characters in the future? It seems like a lot of people are betting on that happening. And if anything, just making the creation part 10 times, if not more cheap, more cheaply than it is today, whether it's, you know, just taking 10 designers or creators from 10 to one, assisting them faster, it doesn't have to be 100% AI, but certainly I've seen myself demos of these people creating very compelling videos of like Star Wars actually looking kind of videos from leveraging AI technologies. What do you think of that? Do you, how does that play into what you're doing? And yeah, what are your thoughts? Yeah, you know, I probably would have heard the same argument when uh, Disney started and they went from, isn't Photoshop going to kill all the sketch artists and the illustrators? And then the next piece of technology, isn't that going to kill every person before that? And the next person, and what we see every single time is that the technology that simplifies and makes this more accessible and more commoditized ultimately builds a much, much bigger industry. Pixar as a company, which is a digital animation company, is really what created Disney's success in its next iteration. But everyone who before that would have been like, but this technology is going to take all of our jobs. And I think AI has got that same kind of conversation. It's going to be able to proliferate a lot more content and content is going to become something that's ubiquitous. I use ChatGPT on a daily basis and ask it questions and get me to help, uh, you know, uh, create some content and that will become more and more available. But ultimately, skilled creators are then going to be able to do much more and much higher quality and great work will still become the covets of great work and industries are going to be built around AI. Prompt engineering wasn't something that existed yesterday or three weeks ago. What does it mean to be able to interact with AI? What does it mean to be a skilled mid-journey prompt engineer to be able to create novel IP that leverages AI? How do you start interacting with it at that type of level? And it's the same shift that's happened in every technological shift. So I think AI will become part of a medium and creators today need to learn how to use it and leverage it and that becomes the differentiation. Let me push back. One more, one more I don't want to push, push back, back on is market yeah. size, which is if everyone's a, their creator and you're right, these tools are going to make it easier. We're still going to need creatives, but now I can build a Star Wars. And maybe it's not as good as your Star Wars and Taylor Star Wars, but we can each do it. And, and look, George Lucas sold Star Wars to Disney for $4 billion. So it's clear market size differentiation when you have one Star Wars, but when you have a million Star Wars, doesn't that automatically make your market share? You'll have these believers and you have 10,000 of them and you can make 100Ks worth of revenue, but you can't make $4 billion because there's never 
going to be just one Star Wars. There's going to be a million of them. When you go onto Netflix, do you only want to watch Star Wars? And Netflix says, well, let, let's ask you two questions. Does the proliferation of more books make a successful book a bigger market or a smaller market? If there was only one book, the Bible, is that, a, is that the market? Or now that there are 10 million books and millions of publishers every single day writing new books, did the market expand or did it subcontract in terms of the upsize of achievement of success in the market? I guess it expanded yes, because drastic. more people would read books. Yes. So if there's but more we're at content... a point now where you only have so many eyeballs and so much time in a day and people are already spending four of them on YouTube. So it's like, aren't we running out of this resource? There's never, there's not an ever increasing amount of attention for entertainment. We haven't tapped out, we haven't tapped out the uh, entertainment attention economy yet. Maybe we're getting close to it, but we haven't tapped it out. And great entertainment will always stand out, especially in a more competitive field. So the people who are successful will be rewarded in outsized returns to the vanilla stuff that just gets produced day in, day out. It's just like any other industry. There's shit books that come onto the market every single day, tens of thousands of them. And the ones that stand out much harder are multi-billion dollar franchises. How do you think of YouTube and all this? You know, the reason I ask this is because every time you read a news article and it talks about streaming, they talk about the big ones, but the real big one is YouTube. And no one, you know, the Wall Street Journal doesn't write articles about the success of YouTube, yet they write an article every week about Netflix. And, right, and, and when we look at, you know, to your point around attention, the real attention seems like it's really being pushed to YouTube. I'll just speak for myself. You know, I've been putting more time in YouTube because I find the videos more interesting and Sure, they're not as high quality production volume, you know, but they're much more like to your point, they're much more kind of feel customized and there's way more of them. And so I'm way more interested in them. And I'm curious, like, how does something like a YouTube that's only growing <laughs> play into this kind of market that you're talking about? Yeah, so our belief is that, you know, YouTube is a fantastic idea and model, but it should be a protocol. It shouldn't be owned by a single company who decides what kind of content gets put on it. So we think the technology should shift. YouTube as a concept is fantastic. The creators should be rewarded in far more outsized portions of that reward. So if you're a, a prominent YouTuber, you need to get you know, tens of millions of views on your videos to, to make a meaningful business out of it. Mr. Beast is a one in one million shot of becoming a successful uh, creator on YouTube. And now he's actually commercializing his success elsewhere. He's creating candy and doing burgers. And like his mainstream of income isn't necessarily out of YouTube. So we think that equation needs to change and the technology today exists to change that equation so that both creators and the consumers of content should be rewarded in the early discovery and growth of a platform like YouTube, that it shouldn't just be in the hands of Google. So that's the fundamental shift. In terms of the content itself, there is going to be a move to more hyper-personalization. There is some strengths and there's some pros and cons to that. Our attention now, I don't know if you notice it, but you, you know, before people could read a whole book, now reading an article is like, wow, that's too long. Watching a whole movie, going into the cinema and watching a two and a half hour movie when you're used to a three second TikTok video is 
now shifting how media gets consumed. Now you can argue whether that's good, whether that's bad. Our thesis is that the technology, the underlying infrastructure that powers all of this needs a radical shift and needs a way that there can be some different forms of governance and co-ownership of these technology stacks. Because YouTube is a huge media company that controls what we get to see, who gets to see it, and what you consume on your feed. But I have no visibility how that gets decided. I have no say into how that gets decided. And I didn't you know, vote for you as the you know, governor of my online video content globally. So speaking of government, you know, go government's making a lot of changes in this space, right? Right. And I, I think that behind the scenes, you know, it's no secret corporations are pushing some of this legislation to help the Googles of the world and to help the metas sure. of the world. And they're making it look like it's for the good of all of us. And when we talk about things like open sourcing, these technologies are making them more uh, accessible and available. I feel like that these sound good in tech circles, but it's so hard to pull off because the world doesn't run on tech circles. The world runs, the world doesn't really run on protocol. It, it runs in governments. It runs in, you know, so how do you see that? Like, how, how do you actually make these changes happen or make people aware of these changes so that they happen, you know, in the state houses and in Washington, D.C. and so, so that people like Coinbase are not attacked, you know, by the SEC and whatnot? Like, how do you kind of see that playing out over the next five to 10 years? Yeah, you know, other than these things happen gradually and then suddenly, if you think of Bitcoin, it took 13 years for it to now be at the point where Coinbase is being attacked by the government and there's other stakeholders who are trying to see that Bitcoin doesn't be a success in kind of disintermediating the traditional financial system, which is an incredibly powerful system. But you've seen that the right incentives, the right structure, allows at least for a force to be able to contend with it. Bitcoin is now a force that is trying to contend with those types of structures. Globally, it's taken 13 years to get there, but it's all driven through a system that is open, that has the right incentive structure from the beginning, and has a technical innovation. And I think that is what's going to happen across media. It's going to happen across every type of asset class. You ask me why I'm a kind of an evangelist of these open systems is that we, the world works on transactions. It works on these global ledgers. And I would rather have a open global system that anyone can interact with and that I can know how this transaction is happening, where it is happening, who has access to it, who doesn't have access to it, rather than a single individual. And that'll take time for people to understand. But ultimately, I think it will become the dominant narrative over time as we see more and more that our rights digitally are being removed by the Metas, the Googles, the Apples who uh, you know, come on the guise of privacy on your device, but actually it's a way for them to sell more ads to you and own that, uh, and own that revenue. By the way, the EO group we're in just messaged somebody, filled out the claim against Facebook, which settled the Cambridge Analytica case for 750 million and he got a hundred bucks for filling out that claim. So you guys might want to fill it out and so will our <laughs> listeners to get some money out of Meta. Uh, well, as we wrap bucks. up here, what? A hundred bucks. You listen to this podcast, you just made a hundred bucks. There you go. That's your ROI. The, as we wrap up here, what advice do you have for entrepreneurs? You have so much experience, maybe specifically for entrepreneurs in the blockchain crypto space. And, you know, somebody wanted to start a new project, you know, to build a new, maybe a new character. 
how, what advice do you have for that? You know, 20 year old thinking about that. For 20 year old builder thinking about that, I would say stop thinking and build it <laughs> and just get out there. And, and you've got all the resources and tools to be able to create and that there is a market that wants to fund new, new ideas especially in this space. There's still a lot of capital. There is still a lot of potential. And to your guys' questions, there's 300 million people who own Bitcoin. That's the biggest success in the space. There's 7 billion people. There is a huge market that still needs to be untapped here. And if you then go into NFTs, there is you know, 3 million wallets that have touched a NFT. That is a drop in the ocean. We haven't even started. We don't know how this game ends and what this technology will do. So if you're now developing, working, building in this space, you are a pioneer and you will be building the future of the internet. And I don't know where else I would rather spend my time. I love your bullishness. I remember Me when too. Bitcoin went from whatever it was, 65K to 15K and I, we were in a dinner together and somebody was like, it's going to the ground. Everybody believe like. Mike Marwards, I know the people. And Yossi was just in there as like calm <laughs> as a cucumber. Being like, don't worry. I've seen this before. It'll come back. Buy some Here more. we are. Now it's 30K. <laughs> yeah, now it's 30. Like, now it's over 30. You're, like, right. you're right. You're right. Cool. Any last plugs? Anything you want to share with the audience? Anything I want to share with the audience? I just love being on the show. If you are a founder and you're thinking about starting, really just do it. You're an inspiration. inspiration. Appreciate you, Yossi. Thank you, Yossi. We'll talk soon. Have a good one. Bye-bye. Cheers, guys. Thank you for rocking with the homies. Taylor Trusty and Flavio. Seize the day on it. Until next time. Hold it down, hold it down.